Folks, welcome to the Jake Feinberg Show, and as we close out another calendar year, uh, it's a high honor to bring in somebody who, uh, even though I've never seen him play live before, um, just the mere fact of uh, sort of getting his rudiments together and divine timing put him in an incredibly erogenous period of American music, and uh, surrounded by a lot of cats who came up listening to records, uh, learned songs by ear. Um, and really became humbled on the bandstand, uh, which is kind of antithetical to what's happening today in some cases, where uh, street languages uh, like jazz and blues are being taught in the academy, and as a result, you have a lot of cats coming out, regardless of the instrument, sounding just like their professor. My guest today uh, accomplished uh, creating his own individual sound, which led to myriads of opportunities with bands like Mandrill and Studio dates with Betty Davis and a dear friend, Kenneth Spider-Rice, otherwise known as Spider-Webb, continues on today in Southern California. Dougie Rodriguez, welcome to the Jake Feinberg Show. Good morning. Thank you. You know, um, I just, I kind of wanted you to talk about, um, ultimately, if you were an ear-trained musician, if you learned to hear music before you learned to read it. Yeah, that was the whole thing in the beginning. I guess my earliest things would be watching TV with mom and dad and seeing the Nelson family, you know, Ozzie and Harriet and Ricky, yeah. closing his eyes, strumming for all the, the beautiful chicks, you know, and that was probably my first kick to into guitar and stuff. And after that, it was... My mom's best friend lived in Virginia. Her husband was an admiral in the Navy. He had a guitar in his bedroom. I used to go in there and take it off the wall, play the open chord, and it just, uh, that did it, just feeling the vibration and everything. After that, it was just starting to listen to records. Of course, the Beatles came out, and that changed everything. And... uh I did have a couple of formal lessons, I think, for about three months, three or four months. This old gentleman named Ernie Artie in Flushing, New York. I've been trying to do some research on him, but I'm kind of dead-ending. Was he Was he a good deal older than you? Oh, yeah. He was a full adult man. And right. I was, right. He was old to me. He was probably, I guess, in just in his late 30s or 40s, but, you know, when we're 11... 12 years old. No, of course. Old. No, of course. Yeah. No, he yeah. came up with, he came up like the, in like that Johnny Smith, West Montgomery era. Yeah. Um, I'm not exactly sure about that, but I think he played with Arthur Godfrey's TV show band. Wow. Was, he had some pictures of him on the wall, if I can recall that. And uh, he had some beautiful old D'Angelico's acoustics. And he taught me bar chords, if you know what they are. Sure. And uh, this technique called uh, ring choke, and it stuck with me forever. But that that the lessons thing went away. Uh, I was just you know in too much of a hurry. Just the, the hormones were coming my, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I was becoming a little rebel, of course. This is a long time ago now. Well, I, I, I want to go back for a minute. I mean, like, the reality is this, that um, whatever mu- regardless of whatever music you were into, it, it wasn't a pre- 
prerequisite that you needed to have some kind of degree to be a musician. I mean, it was it in your mind, even though you were young, immature, the hormones were racing, um, at that time, the mid-60s, was a musician viewed as a viable full-time profession? Uh, and I don't care. Not, I don't care if it's. For, I don't care yeah, if it's. Yeah, I don't care if it's bar gigs or you're playing Carnegie Hall. I'm just saying, like people could yeah. sing for their supper as a musician. It didn't seem as prevalent as it does now. I mean, of course, there were the older professional guys that uh, did the school thing and the lessons and were very learned at music, and they had to be because in New York, it's so competitive. You know, you had to be a union guy, five oh two. And uh, I'm sure they got lots of gigs through through the union. You'd go down there and you could look on the big board. There'd be, you know, looking for dates and session players and everything. Uh, but for youngsters, I don't think it was as easy or, you know, uh, the way you said it, like. Well, I would, I, would say, I would argue that, I mean, I've just my own perspective is just, to me, a musician is not seen as a viable profession today. You got to pay to play. You got to play for the door. I'm just saying, like you didn't. Nobody was asking for your qualifications if you had a master's degree in music, no. right? Absolutely right. Okay, yeah, that's right. That's, that's all I was at. Yeah, I mean, so 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 talk a little bit about the first time you uh, you, you you garnered up enough courage to to ask some older cats to sit in does that or just an early experience of when you were like when you 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 got on the bandstand regardless of whether it was a humbling experience i mean that whatever the gateway was for you the beginning of your career okay well uh let's say 63 beatles are out 64 i was in a three-piece folk singing group in junior high school called the rebels three and we had a uh, upright bass player a singer and me with acoustic guitar wow. and then with the Beatles knocking the Kingston trio out of my reality and <laughs> Peter Paul and Mary uh, I was I started a, a band I was like you could call it a cover band we were just doing Beatles and Stones mostly maybe Jerry and the pacemakers this would be 64 to 65 right with with school guys a couple guys are actually older than me drummer uh, guitar singer rhythm uh, I was playing lead all the time of course I didn't even really know what lead guitar was yet but you were just it and, was just uh, it was just flowing but, through you basically yeah and, and my brother was the bass player so and we all lived within you know two miles of over there on Long Island and we we do sweet 16s and temple dances and stuff and then I then I heard about cats like Michael Bloomfield and uh, that band, the Butterfield Band, and well, the, the, the East, that, that album. York, and I started going yeah. down to the village when I was even thirteen and fourteen, and walking around. And of course, there's millions of clubs, and you just hear the doors are open, and just listening to this new world opening up, and finding out what guitar is, electric guitars, and and just. Going, just being so cra- crazy at this point. I mean, that's all I want. Lived and breathed. I'd lived in my my room with a little record player and lift the arm off the and try to copy all the Stones licks, all Keith Richards licks and Harrison things, and then Clapton came out and Bloomfield, like I said, and then that was a whole new world. Not to mention Jimmy right after that, and saw him several times, right right up close. 
Yeah, the, cafe. You, you, you were seeing him at uh, like Cafe Agogo or down in the village? Yeah. yeah. Cafe, Cafe Agogo. Well, no, I'm curious though, like, I mean, I'm 43 years young, but uh, I'm a Stony Brook native. Where on Long Island were you at? Little Neck. Oh, Great dude, you're NASA. Yeah, I know. I know it well. Out of my camp, Jewish campfronts. So you take the Long Island Railroad into the city. Of course. I yeah. love this. And then you'd go, because to me, my grandma, I used to go in with my brother again. Very different time, late 70s, early 80s, uh, West Village, West 4th Street. But I'm telling you, man, you could not have picked a better time. I think there was a club called the Black Fat Pussycat down there. Uh, you know, Cosby, I mean, you had Wavy Gravy opening for Coleman Hawkins. I, I know the Beatles, I know that for the most part, like you, most people, you were on, you know, the Jimmy train with, you know, Harris and the Beatles. Havens was, Richie Havens was down there. But I, I just, it's just, the Blues Project was down there. So, I mean, yeah, that, that did, I mean, you were, you were a freak, music freak, but, but did, did you, when was the first time you brought your axe down there? Okay, let me let, let me keep going there. Um, Go ahead. I never brought the guitar down yet. I I wouldn't have the courage. Right. Um, but I had a really good friend in Great Neck going to our school here. His name was Mark Klingman. His nickname was Moogie. <laughs> and this guy was a great musician, famous guy. And he uh, lived in the village. And he was like, a look up to guy. He was two years my senior. Wow. He ha actually had an apartment, so I used to go and crash there, like fourteen years old, fifteen at night, two in the morning. Oh, so great, so freaking but, great. But he had his ear on the pace. He was like best friends with Todd Rundgren and played with him in the early bands. Jeez, are you kidding me? No, 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 no. I'm not. Uh, this, this is the beginning of my lucky hands. Pulling me up the ladder. Absolutely, you know, the right Doggy team. Rodriguez. This is it, man. Wait, he didn't. Was he up in Bearsville with Rundgren, or Rundgren was in the city? In the city. Okay. That's not Bearsville, not upstate. Yeah. No, this is all in the city. So Mark hears that Mitch Ryder. Do you remember that name? Oh, yeah, come on, the Detroit Wheels. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Now the Wheels had just separated from Mitch. Mitch's producer Bob Crew. I'm not going to get into much at this point. Well, no, I I know that name though. Go ahead, continue. Yeah, yeah. He put 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 together a new band for Mitch with horns. He wanted it to be like a an R and B review, which I was did. the du jour of the day with uh, like James Brown and you know that and that that era, that genre. So he found out that they were looking for a guitar player and got me an audition, and uh, it was across the street from the Cheetah Club this hotel I can't remember the name of in the basement and I went there nervous 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 and auditioned and they said okay put all these albums Mitch Tuss in my arm says go home in two weeks we're going out on a tour learn all these songs holy huh? cow was it now what now I'm curious though I mean those bands were so prevalent cats like Jimmy Heath would you know and they'd vamp for like 10 minutes but you weren't uh, you did not even you know rhythm guitar playing didn't even register with you you weren't playing like long extensive leads so you must have been having to get your rhythm chops together absolutely you know fortunately the drummer in, in Mitch's band his name was John Sayomos oh my god dude Rick yeah. Murata was obsessed with that dude 
He was yeah. he played on Frampton's albums. Uh, he sure did. Oh, and I, I was with him. We were we were the closest, solid, tight buddies. We we were together. Oh, bless in that band, cat, and man. We, Holy shit! Yeah. Yeah, and uh, we also did Buzzy Linhart, who just passed kind of recently. He did. Yeah, no, so wait, I'm yeah. sorry. Siamos was in the the New Rider uh, contingent. Yes, that's right. right. And uh, so he was into stacks, things I'd never heard of, like you know Otis and all those great Delta people, R and B from the South. You know, sure. And listening to them and. So I was hearing guys like Cropper and all these guitarists that that R&B thing, they with the chords with licks at the same time. So I started growing into that. So like you, like you said, I had to cop a lot of rhythm too because I was the only guitarist. But then you'd have the solos, and they were all short because Mitch's hits they were the two minute forty fives. Exactly. You know? Yeah, I dig. It was just yeah, it was it was formula trip stuff, but still, it's cool. Yeah. So. That that thing lasted for about three years, and then it just he faded away, kind of. And uh, I, I, the, my next thing in life was motorcycles, so I, I raced motocross for a few years. And so you actually walked. You, you actually you Rick, Rick yeah. Barada because Rick was buying his motorcycle. He was in a, a a band of friends called the Manhattan Dirt Riders. Oh my Him God. and David Spinoza. Oh my, you're blowing me away right now, dude. You're blowing me away. So, I know, it's crazy. No, no, because, but you know, he I, was you know, in... He Rick was, and David, and yeah, yeah. Rick's father had a, a car dealership in Rye, New York, or something up by Porchester, and I bought a, a van to lug my dirt bikes around in, and uh, I did that for a while, and got good at it, realizing all the time that, man, one bad crash, and say goodbye guitar well i mean that's what happened i mean it didn't it didn't put him out for good but i think rick danko had a couple of big motorcycle crashes i was gonna say <coughs> I, first of all i've interviewed spinoza and murata multiple times and they uh ricky didn't even start playing drums till he was like 19 had he even started playing music when you met him Oh yeah, I had already. Yeah, I've been through the whole Mitch Ryder thing. I started in '67. I was 17 with Mitch. No, no, I'm saying Murata. Murata didn't come till oh. late. Till late to the game. He was going to the Apollo to dance, and one day Spinoza was like, "You got such good rhythm. Why don't you play drums?" So he was already playing music when you when with the. Uh, yeah. Well, and and, oh, yeah, and he, yeah, yeah, I'd I'd run across him doing a, a date here and then in Manhattan. Sure. Of course. Sure. 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 Also, one before you move on, the the one guy, and I know you lived in Long Island, but there there was, and I know you weren't, you know, you weren't channeling Jim Hall at this point, but there was one cat that Spinoza talks about, and his records, I I have his records. This guy Link Chamberlain. Did you know that cat? No. Okay. No. Anyway, he was like kind of a, a the the avatar of that Westchester County area. But anyway, poor. Uh, so you 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 did the dirt. Why did I'm curious. Why was that road experience not that satisfying? I'm surprised you walked away from music after Mitch Ryder. Well, I well I didn't completely. It was just kind of just kind of got a little sleepy. Uh, sure. It's not like I didn't like it, but I, I just became so into the bikes and and got good at it. You were getting off on it. Yeah, whatever. I, I was absolutely <laughs> yeah. getting off on it. That's what I mean, dude, it obviously was hard. giving you it was giving you more satisfaction than the bandstand. Honestly, if I was doing by the way, was Mitch playing like 
were you on the Chitlin circuit? Or were you playing like theaters? What were you? What kind of venues? All over the place. We were up in Canada doing hockey arenas. We oh. were down south and colleges. A lot of down south stuff. Wow. California, a few shows. I mean, honestly, man, Dougie, if I had the chops or the, if I and that was my first gig, I'd probably burn out too. I don't even care if the pay was that good. That that I mean, after a while, you're playing the same damn stuff over and over again. I, I realize people do that and make a decent living. I don't think they're at peace as a musician, so I don't blame you for walking away. Yeah, I, I don't want to knock the business, but all that business and the office people and the and the recording people and stuff, they, you know, I, I didn't get along with them. And the, the rigidity, and I couldn't read, so I had the dates I did, the recording dates, I, it would have to be friends that, you know, I could always go over to the piano player and say, hey, what's this, you know, because he had chord charts and stuff, so I wasn't, you know, on the uh, Yeah, list, dude, you know, this is so beautiful, it's so beautiful, so let's just talk about this for a minute. Don't gloss over this. After the dirt bikes, you went up to Murata's dad's car shop, you got the bikes, you got it out of your system. <clears throat> then, 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 had you been in the studio prior to that, or the, when was your first yeah. studio date? Oh, oh well, that would be with that first cover, Beetle Band. We made a few uh, demos. Yeah, so I'm talking about one of those situations where it was because I've seen I see some very, uh, very kind of like interesting. The first time you were in with the friends, where you had to go to the piano player and say, "Yo, can you give me some? What are the chords to this song? What was that first major date? Not a demo. Probably a record uh, I did with Mark. I, I mentioned Mark Klingman. He was still my mentor and buddy, and calling me and giving me things. A date with him, probably that he sent me to. He said. Oh, you'll know Jimmy Smith, Jimmy James Allen Smith, not uh, the not the organ Jimmy. player, yeah, yeah. And he'd be on the session, so you know it would be cool for you to go over, you know, because when you're doing those union sessions in those days, everything's rigid. They the, they don't want to waste time, you know. They dude, dude, I'm with you, bro. I love. I mean, <laughs> you had to read flypaper in some ways, but I, you know, so was it just like Klingman was. Were you doing, uh, but still, you would you were part of Radio Registry? You were part of the union, or no? Yeah, yeah, I, you had to be. You still had to be. It was still those kind of days where there'd be a union rep who, who could walk in the studio just doing, you know, uh, an audit on studios. And if people didn't have their union card, couldn't produce it, you could shut the session down. Bottom, bottom line is this, is that, when you get when you come down to <laughs> Hugh McCracken, Cornell Dupree, uh, David Spinoza, I'm leave, going to leave a lot of people out here. Bob Mann, Dougie Rodriguez was probably right there with everyone. Maybe you didn't have the acumen, maybe you didn't have the reading skills, but the cats knew who you were. Yeah, I'm, I met them all. I've met them all, and I sure, I sure. <laughs> Hope they. they well, well, how did you feel? Tell me, tell there. me how you I mean, felt. Yeah, I, I mean, played with Chuck a bunch of times. So, uh, leads me into after Mitch, after the motorcycles, the voices of East Harlem. That that I need you to tell the entire story. This is some of those records are like the funkiest gospel I've ever heard in my life. And when you, <laughs> and when you, when you reached out to me the first time about Spider, you know. I just was like, 
I and you were like that was at least you it came across that maybe you were sort of a founding member of that band, but I know that probably isn't the truth. Can you just take no. me through the entire Voices of East Harlem uh, uh, saga? Uh, best I can. Um, <clears throat> it would probably be nineteen seventy now. Uh, I, who, who who let me know about this? I it may have been Mark again. I'm not sure. Anyway, I came to. Uh, a rehearsal at the SIR studios downtown where the voices were practicing and doing their thing and brought the guitar and uh, it it all worked out. It was smooth, smooth transition. It was basically pretty easy, but but the feel and the the musicians, it was Bob Ely on drums. These were all gospel people. And, you know, that gospel feel man it just overtook me and when you heard all those kids voices in unison going and bernice cole the leader of the whole group she used to be an old on the circuit the old gospel tour circuits in the south long long ago i wish i knew more to tell you about it but that was a i was in church man with that whole thing that was dude you're i got i got goosebumps right now dude bobby ely so when it was like the, yeah. it was a behind the beat kind of thing with the gospel stuff yeah, yeah, it was like, that's a good good way to read it. It was like almost a micro beat back on the 2-4, you know? Totally. But fat, just fat as hell. And, 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 the, and you know, Chuck Rainey was there a lot, and Dougie Roush, oh my. my partner from Linhart Band. For, and, Dougie uh, Roush was like, I feel like he was in eight places at one time, dude. The guy was in, he, <laughs> he was living it with... Uh, he was living with Gregorico from Sly Stone at one point in San Francisco. He was in Santana, uh, and and now you're telling me he and I also another beautiful cat, um, uh, uh, amazing bass player John B. Williams was there. But Chuck, so Chuck was there. Yeah, and, Jerry Jermott would play with us sometimes. Now you're talking about you're talking. About, I'm curious because the albums themselves went from kind of. I don't want to say square gospel to real slick, like funk kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but were you guys like playing out live a lot? The, the voices? Yeah. Yeah, sure. Where, yeah. Now, where were the venues? I mean, could you play where there was alcohol served or was this kind of a, uh, a buttoned up kind of thing? No, 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 no tiny, you know, no little tiny bars or anything like that. It was always like a concert. I mean, we played, they played amazing places. I mean, we played uh, the Lincoln Center. We Whoa. played uh, Carnegie. We we made this incredible movie that you can still get. We went to Africa, man, with Santana and... Uh, what are you talking about? What, wait, 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 hold on. This was the, 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 what was it called? Soul... Soul to Soul, yeah. You went with Les McCann was on that, I think. Les McCann, yeah. Oh my God, you were on, dude. Dougie Rodriguez, right place, right time, with the right, yeah. with the right, with the right uh, constant. This is unbelievable. And so, and so you're you're in that group. Um, how much were you? How how flexible was it to be able? Because I mean, Ryder was such a formula trip. Was this one of those things where? You, there were certain songs that would lend themselves to some yeah. serious stretching. Yeah, definitely oh. much more, man. When the when the when the mojo was in the room with the voices, you know, <laughs> when the kids were just dancing and free, we were we were on. We could really tear it up. But with Mitch, it was pretty 
toe the line, this is the arrangement, you know, because we had a leader of the band, the tenor sax player, Jimmy Loomis, great guy, but he had to, he had to protect his employment and everything, so everyone had to do their thing. We were wearing these funky um, rhinestone-colored tuxedos. Absolutely. Standing on these four-foot discs that had lights inside of with a lucite floor, so you had light coming underneath you, and uh, it, it, it was... It was stiff. It was, it was good. There were some moments, man, when we were cooking. Jenny Take a Ride and Sakatumi, they were fun as hell to play, you know. I but, get uh, You know, it's just not my bag, you know. But I dig it. I dig. And, and also, like, yeah. so let's just, let's just, when, so how did the, you showed up and it was a kind of a, the voices was just sort of starting or they had already made a couple of albums? They already had it going. I think they had a couple albums out, and they were all together for a couple of years already with their two uh, directors. It was Anna Griffin and Bernice Cole. You can probably Google those people. They should be in there. <laughs> yeah, no, um, so this is, this is so, so did you wind up ever going in the studio with them or just playing live with them? Yeah, there's more to the story. Go ahead, bud. I'm sorry, Dougie. Let, go ahead. Let, let me lay it on you. So let's see. After Africa, we came back. We're not gonna. We're they, gonna have to go back to Africa later. By the way, I need to talk about the motherland, dude. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so we come back to New York, and there would be two and three week gaps sometimes where there was nothing going on with the voices, and I was just jamming with friends and doing little things. But they they want to do a new album now, so. Guess who they get? And this is a mind blower. We go to Detroit to Motown Studio. Right. And Pac 3 Studio with David Van de Pitt arranging the strings. And uh, these guys that were just heroes and legends that I'd read about. Uriel Jones, I'm playing with all of a sudden. Are you kidding? Are you, I'm not are you, kidding, his, man. His Pistol Allen or Jamerson? No, no, it was Bob Babbitt. Oh, that's pretty good, damn good. Babbitt. Yeah. yeah, who happens to be an old friend of Mitch's, who I met during Mitch, when I used to go to Detroit to Mitch's house, Bob Babbitt, I met him back then, that's before, that's years before. That anyway. dude was everywhere. Wait, what about Dennis Coffey, was he there? He was around, but I didn't meet him. He no, coffee, 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 and yeah. you, coffee, and you would have been a couple of gunslingers out there, dude. That dude was throwing down too. Yeah, that Scorpio. I think that's that right. The electric band, the, you know, Rodriguez, you're you're in the pocket, dude. You're in that pocket. Yeah. So you get out. So it was Earl Van Dyke. Who else was in the studio? Yeah. Uh, well, let's see. Eddie Bongos was. Oh, are you kidding me, dude? Your old James Allen Smith. Jimmy. Yep. My buddy was playing keyboards. I was playing guitar, uh, and I'm trying to think of the producer's name, and I can't think of it. He he was uh, around from the Philly Sound. Thomas Bell does that sound Th- like that? That sounds yeah, but I mean that was Sigma. He went out to Detroit. He went out to Motown. I know. I think he was hired for a date or two, and uh, sure did Tom so- did T H O M Bell. Yeah. Yeah, and so did, um, gosh darn it, my name, my, my memory now. It's all right, it's all right. Yeah, no, I'll, I'll think of it. Damn it, and the song he has, The Ghetto. Oh, 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 Donna, oh dude, Donnie my man. Hathaway. Donnie Don, Hathaway. Dude, Donnie, he's always with me, man. Spinoza, every time he hears, every time he hears, uh, 
Someday we'll all be free. Spinoza still sheds a tear. I still do too, man. Donnie, man, that freaking guy. Anyway, so he was there? He would floor you, man, when he would just play his piano, getting the kids together in a good mood, you know? Ah. He was like He was like the preacher. And, I mean, I'd get the, ah, shivering, man, the, the chords and the tones and the voices he had. And so... Yeah. Damn, there was that. dude. And, so and you, we so you, did, you went out to, we, you went out to Motown. What? Yeah. Go, so you were actually in because that was a band box of a studio. You guys were all jammed in there. Yeah, 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 wow. and yeah. It was hard to believe. Um, and uh, the other fellow. Oh gosh, the guy singer with the round glasses. <laughs> Freddie's dead. The album. Oh my God, Curtis Mayfield. Yeah, Curtis Mayfield. You got it. He, yeah, they did some work with him too. Wait, hold on, hold on, hold on. The, the the voices of East Harlem brought him in to do this record. I think so. I believe. Yeah. Do we do we do we know correct. what the name of the record is? By the way, it's not on your discography. Yeah. Well, I'll look it up. Anyway, so. Things, that, yeah. yeah, things like that happen. No, but now that you've met Jake Feinberg, we're going to get this stuff on the table now. Um, so you went out there, you pressed the record, and and but it was so it was basically. Were there any other cats that came from New York with you? It sounds like Jamat, uh, Rainey, Spider. Did Spider didn't come out there? No, no, he didn't. No, it was just me and Jimmy, the keyboard guy. Yeah, Jimmy Smith. Yeah, dude, I dude that. You know, you know what's funny? That dude. Thank you for reminding me. I just talked to Spider a couple months ago. He said that he was super close with Jimmy and Chuck. Though they were really, I did not really. Jimmy was not on my radar for a while. I think he played with King Curtis. Yeah, oh, he was yeah. a kingpin for yeah. sure. With with yeah, with yeah. with Spider and Chuck. That that is so beautiful. So Jimmy and you went out there. Yeah. Um. And and yeah, take us take us home from there. I mean, what, what did you guys? Okay. Yeah. So one of the other great highlights that is you know stay with me forever is after, well, this has to be about a year after that. And I, I don't think the record did that good. I don't think the company, record company, who was it, Just Sunshine? or That's something? what it is. Uh, dude, this, just just, yeah. drop a, just drop some LSD and have they, a ball. They didn't want to throw too much dough at it. No, although I will say their, their selection of artists was ridiculously yeah. cool. They knew what they were doing, but they did not know how to promote so here, here's the here's the best thing I've ever almost ever done in my life. <laughs> we uh, made another that and that Soul to Soul Africa thing was a movie, and then there was another movie made by this guy. And if I said his name, you know him. He does lots of musical documentaries. We did Sing Sing with BB King at the prison. What? Y- yeah. Wait, a, wait, 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 hold on. Wait, but that. <laughs> that was very trendy at that time. I, I mean, I remember BB, but that that album didn't get recorded. No, this is not an album. This is a live show at Sing Sing Prison. Hang on a second, just hey, one second. Absolutely. There we go. You got to get your hands on this. You can do it. It's BB King and Joan Baez. That's how it was. Uh, dude, you're blowing filled. me away, dude. This is unreal. This is 1972, and I got to meet after Mike Bloomfield telling me, you got to get B.B. King and get his records, because I had no idea where Bloomfield got his stuff from, you know, when I met him when I was a punk. So 
here I am playing with B.B. King at Sing Sing Prison and talking to him. And he gave me a pick, and I was so stoked. And, you know, and we're all on there, and the kids all come out and sing, and B.B. does a great... And he says it's the best show he's ever done. He, but, Wait, I, I just want to be clear about something. <laughs> um, I know we're jumping around here, but yeah. you didn't tell me. I thought you maybe got hip to... Bloomfield on like East West Butterfield band, but when did you first went? Uh, Bloomfield's very dear in my spirit deeply. When did you cross paths with him? Even if you were a punk, uh, probably sixty five. The early Cafe Go Go concerts. They used to come there a lot. The Butterfield the Butterfield band. band did. Wow. Yeah. Did you used to see Buzzy Feetin with them? Yeah, I, no, I never saw, but I knew Buzzy's not real well. But we bumped heads, we dude. Were, yeah, no, you Buzzy. and Buzzy. I can wait. No, I mean, I can see that you guys might have been rivals. Long Island Cats, badass guitar players. It's a you're ripe for the picking, right there. Yeah, Buzzy. Buzzy was he was good, man. He was a good blues. Uh, I say, I don't know. I, for a white guy, can you say that still, <laughs> dude? I'm not part of the woke mob, dude. It's fine. I, I know. Yeah. I'm. I'm being. Silly. No, dude. Believe me, dude. It's hard, man. No, yeah, dude. You, you, you don't know what's gonna. Hold on. I want to read this back. <laughs> um, right on. Be free. That sounds like that. That was one of the the earlier. Yeah, earlier. and 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 I was Rubens David Rubinson part of the, the the mix with you, or was he gone by then with with the voices of East Harlem? I don't recall that name. Okay, well, he was Herbie's manager during that, uh, you know, M1 Dishi period. Uh, Rubinson, very famous cat. Uh, Santana cat, too. The, 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 oh. It says here, the group Voices of East Harlem received a standing ovation <laughs> at the 1970 Isle of Wight Festival in the UK, appeared at the P- Apollo Theater, and performed in Ghana, February 71, at Soul to Soul. So you, was, was the Soul to Soul concert before you went to Motown? I think it was. Yeah. My in my mind memory. Let's yeah, so then then you you put out a sec Brothers and Sisters with some tracks produced by Donnie Hathaway. Yeah. Wow. That's yeah. A, that might have been that might have been the album you were on. Subsequently when You're the, Giving Love, I think was the name of the song that was the single from it. When You're Giving Love. When You're Giving Love. No, this is it. Subsequently, they also performed in a concert at Sing Sing Prison with B.B. and Joan Baez, which was filmed yeah. for a documentary. Uh, yeah. Okay, and then they've released a third album. No, this is it. They released a third album, The Voices of East Harlem, self-titled, produced by Curtis Mayfield, Leroy Hudson, yeah. and, and Rich Tufo. By this time, their lead vocalists were Jerry Griffin and Monica Burris. Uh, right. Other sing, yeah. The album yielded a minor hit single, Doug Rodriguez special, "Giving Love." Nineteen seventy-three. That's the album, self-titled "Voices of East Harlem." Wow, wow, unbelievable, man. <laughs> I want to go back for a second, though. Um, so that was that was seminal. I mean, that would be seminal for anybody for BB to give them a pick. But at that, you well, know. That's pretty intense. I know. It sounds so trite right now to say it, but I've got it still. And um, I don't think it's trite. I think it's freaking legacy, man. It's just like... Yeah, I, I, I was shaking, man. I'm telling you. I was shaking, you know, to be right there. Just, I'm, you know, he's, my face is a foot away from mine saying, hey, man, I like, I like the way you sound, you know, and it shaking soft hand, soft, warm hand. I remember it. 
and and geez. Okay, I want to talk to you about something. Uh, I've been I'm 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 very good friends with Michael Shreve, the drummer from Santana. And uh, he's, you know, he's a beautiful cat. And he told me he went on that Soul to Soul tour with yeah. Carlos. And I believe, well, Gene Ammons, the horn player, with <coughs> uh, it was funny. Uh, Michael and Carlos used to bring their little Tascam tape recorders to the both end in San Francisco and record all these jazz cats who would come in. And Gene Gene Ammons came in, and uh, and they and Michael had um, had uh, ele- had hipped. Um, I can't remember the exact story, but he basically uh, Gene put down a. Uh, oh, he, Gene recorded "Jungle Fever." I think that's a Santana tune um, on one of his albums, and it was a it was a high grossing album for him. And Lenny White was on drums at this gig at the both end. And Michael, after the gig was like, you know, I would love to go back and just, you know, uh, you know, uh, or maybe Santana covered a, a Gene Ammons. Either way, uh, he tried to get to the, to the dressing room and Gene Ammons is like, I don't want to see that white boy. And then, and then I think it was Otis Redding in that soul to soul who wouldn't let Michael in the dressing room. And yeah. And I, and I know that, I mean, you have a kind of a Latin name, but, you know, maybe not the darkest complexion. I mean, you know, it just seemed like it was all good because on the way back, I think Roberta Flack and Mavis Staples stuck Michael in the middle of them, and he was like an Oreo cookie, and they were just having a ball, listening to tunes and stuff. But did you feel like you were uh, accepted by the black musicians of the time? Absolutely, I never felt any any other any other way. Right. And, and before we go off there, I want to tell you, Shreve is one of the most soulful. I mean, if you just want to say someone has a soul, he's the guy that near the top of the list. Yeah, the man, guy, I couldn't have said it better the guy myself. Adores music so much, you know. Uh, he's incredible. He's re- it's, it's his religion. He he's totally the man when it comes to soul as a guy. And I can't believe that Ammons did that to him. The story you just told me—that's that's. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna find the story because I want to make sure before with this interview. I want to read it to you. It was, it's in my third book. Um, it's like a stunning revelation, just in the sense of. Uh, well, I'm gonna dig it up yeah. right now. So you didn't. So in Ghana, can you talk? I mean, I know that you were still young, gun. Did you? What was the motherland like? Because oh, yeah, go okay. ahead. You have to get your hands on a copy of it and see. Um, for this one, this one part, we take some buses from the hotel. You call it a hotel. It's not really a hotel as you would picture and envision it. But anyway, we take some buses to go to a village to visit a village in the bush. Uh, oh yeah, an hour away from where we were staying, and he, we come off the bus. And we're in a village where they've never seen a white-skinned person, ever. So I'm there, sitting, playing guitar. And they're coming around me in a circling around me. And And they're like, if you've ever seen a dog who's scared to get close to something, they'll get close and then run back. Sure. I'm, I'm telling you the truth. This is how, you know, it was. 
yeah. So yeah, but but nothing negative. It was just like right. It was just like curiosity and a little bit like a uh, little little scared, but nothing threatening. Yeah. You know. Yeah. So then the the the, uh, the group comes in, the girls and the boys, the singers, the choir, and start singing the song I was playing. You know, and and the, and and it turns into a scene in the movie that the. The editor or whoever chose to keep it in there, that little sector of that visit. It, it was a visit to a village where their king was blind. And he was coming in. He was like 95 years old. And he was carried on a thing that you just see in movies, like Roman Gladiator Year movies, this platform that these young men were carrying him in on. And they sent all his, his young grandsons and granddaughters because they were royalty, they had big gold bracelets, and and they had sticks whipping, and they'd have to whip all the villagers out of the way because the villagers wanted to see the king. They never get to see him. Holy so God! This is oh yeah, this is this is this is, like this, is so, this is so this is this is you don't even need psychedelics for this. No, no, no. So and then oh, we do the concert, and I think it's called Black Star Square, and it's just incredible. Oh man. Yeah. There, there, I don't know, it was a couple hundred, 300,000 people at least, easy, because it was a free show. And Wilson Pickett, you know, he's on the on the stage. Well, too. no, I want to, this is, I got the story, I want to yeah. read it to you, because this leads right, I, I want Dougie, and so you were playing only with the Voices of East Harlem. Right there, yeah. Got it. All right, so this is the, uh, a vignette from my third book with Shreve called <laughs> Like an Oreo Cookie. He said... That's funny. Gene Ammons did an album called Brother Jug, and on it there was a tune called Jungle Strut with Bernard Purdy playing on it. I was being influenced by David Garibaldi, who studied with Purdy. I thought Jungle Strut would be good for the Santana band, so we recorded that song and put it out, and the record was very successful. Gene was playing the Both And Club in San Francisco. I went to see him and tried to go backstage and tell him that I was the one that brought the song to the band. He wouldn't even let me in the dressing room. It was old school prejudice. I was thinking, wow, man, aside from me just being an out-and-out fan of your music and your sound, I made you a lot of money. You're not going to let me in the room because I'm white? I was hanging out with Ike Turner in Accra, Ghana, doing a film called Soul to Soul. I was hanging around with Ike, and we went to Wilson Pickett's room, and Pickett wouldn't let me in. I know this is old school stuff, and I understand it, but it's painful that they had to feel that way. Even then it was old school because people were opening up to all kinds of music at the time, and I think it's that way now. On the flight back from Africa, I sat between Mavis Staples and Roberta Flack, listening to my tape of female vocalists, listening to my tape of female vocalists that I just adored. They were both on there. We had long discussions about female singers, and it goes on. Anyway, uh, uh, that that's that's the cold cold hard truth right there, man. It's it, it, to me yeah. that's. I mean, I'm I'm not saying that they don't have a right to feel that way. It's just yeah. when you put Jungle Strut on a Santana album, and you know that Ammons is getting the publishing, and you know these guys were starving right. to death, you just figured there might be a little bit of gratitude. I don't know. I just you, but I, you never ran into anything like that. No, but what I did see that blew my mind is my first year with Mitch. 67 we were, we were down south way down in the bible belt and in texas and at that time there still had whites only bathrooms sure. yeah the guys wouldn't get off the bus and whoever was a black person on our bus either on the crew or in the band 
And I'm saying, come on, it's, it's a, we used to call it a piss and a milkshake stop. We'd go get a burger and a milkshake and take a leak. No, 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 we can't, no, we ain't going. And I, I said, what? what? What do you mean? You know, like, I, I never knew this existed. Were, were you also, I'm curious, because it was a mixed band, were you having to drive those cats to the black side of town and they had to stay there and then the other cats would go to the white side of town? Mm, I didn't see that. No, we always could stay together. But even in the early days of Mitch to L.A., it was close to those riots. And, right. And the, the black guys in the band were very nervous about going out to dinner and things. And, oh, Jesus. Yeah, it, that was the time I, that I actually experienced those times. But My day. It was awful. Yeah, so, so I mean, did you did you connect at all with, I mean, did you get a chance to get to know Carlos at that time, or? Uh, I met Carlos, I guess I did meet him at that, at, in Africa on the plane. It was a 707, and it, it originated in on the, on the West Coast, and whoever the West Coast bands were got on there, and then they stopped at JFK, and we all got on there. And then that's where I think I met him for the first time. Didn't chat a lot, but, he, you know, he was pleasant and everything. And it was great to meet him because I think I had seen him once on Long Island already. And they they had their early show, their first band with David Brown before Dougie. They they were smoking, man, those guys. Well, you know, the other funny thing is that was, was Shreve in the band at that point? Yeah. Yeah, no, yeah. I was going to say the first band, going back to the, the Santana Blues Band, I interviewed Carabello twice, and they had to open for Charles Lloyd, and they were doing, like, like really pop cover tunes. They didn't, And they, the originals they had, they didn't even have a bridge to the tunes. They were scared to death. But they got out there and got through it. But they were petrified. Obviously, the band got a little bit more sophisticated. Um, yeah. You know... I I cannot uh, now looking through this. I cannot believe, and I if I ever find this record again, I will never get rid of it because it's one of the quirkiest, coolest records I've ever seen, ever listened to. Our your, our boy Buzzy Feetons on it, and here you are doing Lay Lady Lay music from Free Creek. Oh, and I think if I if but I remember this foggy story of Buzzy telling me that everybody showed up on the corner of the street one night and they went into the studio late. I'm just trying, I mean, Keith Emerson was on there. It was the weirdest conglomeration of people. It was like, yeah. And so talk to me about how that came. Talk to me. Yeah. Crazy. But go on. No, I mean, it just, it just, it just, yeah, no, because I, I really like, it's such, I, when I, it's like right in my pocket and I don't know why I got rid of the album and now to, to know that you were collaborating on it, I'm just curious about like, because it sounds like it's some live album like from a festival, but it was done in the studio, wasn't it? Yeah, it's all studio done. And that's another Mark Klingman thing. Yo, is that cat still with us, by the way? No, no, Mark passed, man. He, he Mark, passed, uh, dude, yeah. Mark Klingman connected us from the, from the heavens, dude. Yeah. Mark Klingman, dude. So Klingman, so basically you, the, the, like, like, Radio Registry would call you for Suds and Duds commercials? Were you doing any studio work? I mean, I'm just trying to, like, in the, in between the times off from Voices from East Harlem and stuff. Uh, I was doing stuff, well, let's see, 70. I was doing stuff with Buzzy Linhart, too, I think, about around the same time. What was the concept? Uh, you know, it's funny. I don't think, I could be wrong. I just don't know if Buzzy's 
live sound ever carried over to his records. Um, I'm curious about like the, the, the philosophy as it related to that group, because I mean, I hate that word fusion, but you couldn't, that was the time when everything was fusing together. Yeah. Uh, but that's a whole nother subject. He was, uh, he was great and all, but he, he was a strange guy. And, Again, I didn't think there was that much money ever thrown promoting him. Uh, it's just one of those unfortunate things. I don't, I don't know. He had such a great underground following, but com- commercially, for some reason, I don't know why it didn't take off. But, but Buzzy did lots of things. He made some movies and stuff. He's in that funny movie uh, where he's naked, hitchhiking. <laughs> would, would, would you? Uh... Were, were the live shows more in, instrumentally stretched out, or was it kind of, uh, or or was it more st- structured? Well, with Buzzy, uh, we didn't do a lot of shows, so didn't do a lot of live performances. Cafe Gogo a couple times. We made a couple of videos Interesting. up at this loft, uh, playing for some people. Did you? Did you? So I mean, were you were, were you going to? I have to believe Rodriguez. Just a hungry, hungry cat. Were you going to see like Lifetime with McLaughlin and Larry Young and at the Slugs? Were you going? Were you tapping into that really raw, dripping Billy Cox, like Larry Young, you know, early McLaughlin Lifetime emergency stuff? Were you were you putting your toe in the water on that? Is that Mahavishnu? That was like right, yeah. Mahavishnu. Everybody, yeah. That was when you know. They had, you know, speaker stacks that looked like refrigerator tubs, and Billy had a gun. That was Mahavishnu. This was like, I'm just wondering, like, when you went down to the West Village, was Klingman taking you to slugs to see the real, the no. cat? No. 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 I, you know, I wish I'd have been pushed to the jazz side of the quotient much earlier, man, because I admire it so much now, and, it, and that that's the last frontier for any musician, you know. Absolutely. Were you going to Smalls to see Grant Green at all? Did you see that? No, see that's so no, you were you were just kind of out of yeah. sight, out of mind. You were in the rock blues uh, right. vein kind of deal. Exactly, okay. blues and and R and B and some rock, not the heavy metal. Never, never, never liked that. I don't know, and I. Don't want to. I know everyone's entitled to their stuff, but never move. No, nah, the there's nothing, dude. No, there's no dynamics. Just smashing around. I, I mean, I appreciate their their raw enthusiasm, but I can't feel it. Okay, that, yeah. 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 So, but everyone has their opinion. So, 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 so. Okay, so talk. To, you you said you were going to tell me something about Free Creek or something. You said you had something. Well, to tell. that that I think the producer is Earl Dowd. Do you is, have a? I'm going to look, it was a, was a Tom Dowd's brother? Yeah, I think it was. Jesus, God. That's, in, okay, that's, I'm, I'm looking it up right here. I think it's Earl Dowd. Yeah. Anyway, he burned me. He burned me on, uh, we were all just paid, uh, I think we got like double session pay, which was okay at the time, you know. I mean, you know, you're living hand to mouth, but we got a check and it didn't, it bur- you know, it bounced. And it stuff. bounced? I tried to go and find out about it, but I didn't spend too much time about it. Yeah, I got burned by Earl Dowd. I was angry for a while, but... 
so I think some of the other cats might have been burned too. Yeah. Yeah, I think I that's why. I mean, I think starting yeah. legal shit here on the on you know. I'm just curious about like um, so who, do you remember who you played with on that particular track? Uh, Mark. Oh, that was a Klingman session. Yeah. Oh, man, I nah, I can't remember. I can't remember the names. I think, yeah, I think, yeah, Mark was, I think Mark was on most of the things, even with the heavies. Yeah, this is insane. Yeah. Um, can, can I tr- lay a, a John McLaughlin? I, 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 I do. He's, he's, I mean, I love, I've done four. I love the man. Go ahead. Okay, you probably already know, after the voices and everything, and after the African, the movie, Dougie Roush, our bass player, him and I were invited, come out to the West Coast, man, it's really happening. And I think they really wanted Dougie to be in their band. I don't think, they knew we were tight, we were brothers. So I would come along, but no, they had just, Neil had just joined the band. Neil was freaking 16 or something. So you're talking about Santana. I, I did. Yeah, okay, yeah. it's the African movie. I did, the way back I did. To New York. So Dougie, he went, he went to, to Carbo, so he split. So then after a while, Dougie has me come out, flies me out to play on... Caravanserai. I, I dude, I can. So that's the truth. I was. That's why I asked you about Santana. It was Dougie Roush that got you out there. Okay. Holy um, shit. Here, let me tell you. The Go ahead. Story. Yeah, please. So I think it's Caravanserai. It is. It is. Um, I'm. I'm never. I'm never passing that album up. I, I've seen it millions oh. of times. Dougie Rodriguez. I'm like, are you kidding me? I, he's. I I, I. 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 I'm. I'm ashamed to say. Well, I'm just honored that you reached out to me because this is sick. Go ahead. Well, it's it's a classic album. It's beautiful. It's 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 heartening, man. It's when the crickets in the beginning, when you hear that. Oh, it's, yeah, well, no, you know, I anyway, mean, so <coughs> John McLaughlin. Yeah. John McLaughlin's on it, and I hope it's Caravans, right? It is. One. No, I'm looking at it right here. That's what it okay. is. Yeah. So here I am. Dig it, okay? I just have heard of this guy. My older brother used to play the Mahavishnu album for me, and I'm just sitting there going, I can't understand how the guy's playing. He's out of his mind. It's so good. You know, here I am, and here he walks in the studio, and Carlos says, Hey, Dougie, come over. I want you to meet John McLaughlin. Oh, okay. How you doing? Yeah. So they start, and he's overdubbing on one of the tracks, and I've got my head stuck in the back of his twin reverb listening to John McLaughlin rip and do his tracking, you know. Dude, are you freaking kidding me, dude? I'm not kidding. This is, dude, this is a... I wish we had cameras in those days to take a picture. Dude, it would have been, that would have gone viral, dude. It's insane. So, so this guy, he's another guy who's from outer space. He's just, those, some guys are just so gifted. It's just, you know. Well, he, also, I mean, let's, you know, the truth is he, he absolutely was, and, uh, <clears throat> but you know, fundamentally, and people can laugh about it. But um, you know, his you know, I've d- I've done some pretty deep dives with him on my show, and um, wow. you know, I'll send those interviews to you because you really love them. And uh, you know, um, he was he was worried about being roadkill, uh, and uh, and and you know, he had he he met his guru Sri Chimnoy and. You know, when Mahavishnu was first starting up and literally having commercial success, 
Um, Sheree had him when they were off the road. He said, John, you know, because John was living in an ashram in New York, and and the, and and he said, uh, you know, the, the the disciples need to eat. You need to open an Indian restaurant and cook affordable southern vegetarian southern Indian vegetarian food for the disciples for a dollar fifty or two bucks a day. And for like almost two years, John did that. Like he learned. I mean, that was basically the way of Sri saying, "Okay, you think you're hot stuff." You think you're going to be a rock star. Maybe you already are. Can you actually just keep both feet on the ground? And to me, like, his humanity is what, I mean, I know he's an amazing player, even though sometimes I feel like the beat falls in the oddest places with him. But, you know, still, the humanity and the heart and the accessibility, I mean, Johnny is just, like, really one of a kind. I think that's such a cool thing that you were, was that Pacific High Recorders, or where were you recording at? Do you remember? At uh, Columbia on Folsom. I did. Columbia, Columbia Studio. Got it. Yeah. So, 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 so that must have been. So, how many tracks were you on? Just a couple, or just a couple, I think. Yeah, two or three. Yeah. And then, did you wind up spending some time out there? Yeah, I was living with Dougie, and I also. It's funny you said Dougie when he first came out. I think he lived with Greg. I uh, stayed with Greg, too. I stayed at Greg's house when we were doing uh, some of the Santana thing and some of the Betty Davis stuff. Dude, I am, dude, Greg is like, Greg and Mike Clark and Michael Shreve and Garibaldi, they put me on their back. All, Greg Rico, I just saw him in a few, maybe a half a year ago in Mill Valley. I mean, the wow. guy is freaking and if you want to connect with these guys again, I just think, to me, like, these are the cats, man. I mean, you can talk about all the other dudes. These are the cats. I mean, I, I cannot believe, because what happened was uh, Greg was living with Dougie at a certain point, and, um, and then uh, Dougie brought home Miroslav Vitus, you know, the, the bass player. The, uh, yeah. you know, and then, uh, you know, Miroslav was playing with, with uh, Weather Report, with Zawinul, and that's when, uh, they, you know, Greg liked them right away, and they were like, yo, we, you know, Alphonse Muzon uh, called Wayne Shorter uh, and said when, when his, Wayne's wife was pregnant, Muzon called him up, he said, when's, when's your wife having that fucking baby? And, uh, and so Wayne fired him, and so they needed a drummer. And so Rico went on tour and with with Weather Report, but that was right around that time that Dougie Rodriguez was in there too. It's amazing. Wow, yeah, Greg. Greg's a sweetheart, man. Sweetheart of a guy. Great player. Such a great attitude. Um, great player. So unique, you know. Yeah, yeah man. All oh, that work with Sly, and, and I had seen Sly with Greg somewhere on the road. We did a show together. I can't think which band. It, uh, may have been with Mitch, or may have been with the Voices or something, but I remember watching him, and everyone was saying way before the show, watch that drummer, that drummer, that guy's out of sight, and sure enough. And then getting to meet him and play with him was just a mind-blowing thing at his house. He lived up in Burlingame, that's on the peninsula, next to San Mateo. Was this the house where he had in his living room just a drum set and some big speaker stacks? I, I don't recall that he had a music room downstairs in that house. Where Berlin, so so, and you were just going and uh, 
<coughs> and play with him. Yeah, I know. I mean, dude, the, yeah. he was completely inspirational to everybody there because I, I Sly, yeah, Sly really hit outside of Jefferson Airplane, which is more of like pop rock, you know, like dance. Yeah. Like Sly really was like the founding mem- that solidified that San Francisco sound, you know. <laughs> Oh man, they're the cornerstones of so much, That's man, right. of the enthusiasm and, and and you know, and the and the and the everyone black and white together brotherhood, you know, no racial barriers. It was just totally happening, man. They, you know. Right. Uh, the the um so but I have to believe that you were I mean, again, you weren't going into the last uh I forget what you used this uh, jazz is the last chapter the last saga whatever it is but you know maybe you weren't going down to see art blakey at that time but i just know that at that period of time uh lenny white was being solicited by chick korea for return to forever and journey and so and then i see you recording on lenny white album so what kind of gigs were you playing not you know did you wind up playing some gigs in san francisco uh just all recordings, no. What are the recordings? Wait, hold on. Live, outside of Kevin. Jam- yeah. Like live jams or something. With a few jams live, but no, nothing formal with, you know, with any set group other than the recordings we just did there. The, the, so Kevin Sarai was one recording. Were there other recordings you did out there? Well, the Welcome album with Carlos. Oh, my. Wait, the- you, wait, wait, hold on. You went back into the, How quickly were those albums back to back? I think they are at least a year apart, something like that. So even, so even though you came to record and Dougie was your boy, you didn't become a fixture in the live Santana band or at all. No, no, okay, no, no. They had no. Neil was pumping it away. It, there was no room for. Yeah, I guess. Or, yeah, I no did. way. Yeah. So Dougie was like, "Yo, my man." Doug. So how did you? I'm just trying to figure out how you survived out i mean how do you get how do you sing for well, your supper well it was cheaper living back then of course i know i know it's 200 bucks to live in a, in a yeah i did carlos and you know you mentioned before about michael shreve writing and helping him giving the the publishing and yeah. the writing royalties for am and doing the favors that's the way they were carlos and michael and carabello and not so much Greg. Uh, he always seemed a little selfish and off, but but uh, that's not nice to say. I, no, I don't he, mean it. I, you know, the, the, Greg. He seemed halfway. Maybe he's changed. I when I interviewed him, Neil always saw seemed a little bit uh, uptight. But you know, he played with Rico and Pete Sears and those guys. You know, I mean, they, anyway, they were givers, right? They were giving stuff. Yeah. yeah. So let me let me tell you, Carlos. You know, so Dougie, obviously. <clears throat> I like to tell myself and to make, to make myself feel good that they knew all the time. They asked me to come out to the West coast with Dougie to maybe, you know, think about being in the band, but, uh, well, I, I, I would, I would say that up about Neil yet, but the thing yeah. is Carlos put, gave me the work and he gave me a percentage of a point on some of the royalty, which kept me alive for like two years. Back when Dude, that back is so so getting, so. You know. Yeah, no, I just this is so interesting. I'm as a percentage of the point means you you did get some publishing on it. Is that? Well, yeah, exactly. Yeah, he shared. Yeah, he shared some of either from his publishing or his 
writing royalty. I don't know which was which, what his deals. I would never be privy to the, what his deals were. But uh, it was that famous guy. What's his name, man? You know, the guy, that, the showman that had the Fillmore. Oh, Bill Graham, baby. Yeah. yeah, Bill was handling Carlos at the time. And it was all done through his office. It was Bill Graham Productions, the checks I got. So I'm sure it's something that Carlos worked out because they were givers, man. Like you said. Well, and, and then, then Dougie was sure. like, Doug Roush was like, dude, Dougie's my man. Let you know, let he, you know, and so that's freak. See, I that's that's why I, I, this is why I do my show, man. This you know because Carlos is so. These guys, for better or for worse, are so insulated now. They have pop. They have entourages all over. They're untouchable almost. I mean, I got a well, chance, yeah. you know, but but before it was like, it was just. It was every one of those major dudes, Gar- Jerry Garcia, Carlos, uh, McLaughlin. Uh, it was spreading. It was just there was a lot of generosity and there was a lot of, you know, people. There was a lot of a lot of sh- shysters out there. People got ripped off and stuff. But at the same time, you know, I don't need to tell you that. But 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 still, that that's why I do my show, yeah. because that's the humanity of it all. The, the cats that come from streets you know uh, they know it and they learn what it's like to have just a dollar in your pocket they know and it, it never leaves them for, for, for you know ever for, for some reason no not really and i bet like you said they have to be hidden in a way from the public now it's hard to get or untouchable like carl but still i bet you he's still a wonderful guy absolutely no i mean I, it's true and, and you know but sometimes the, you just <laughs> anyway, it was just the music was such a it dictated yeah. our culture so much back then. It was so no. it, was, it was beautiful, but yet you could be a little anonymous. There were no cell phones. The paparazzi wasn't following you around, um, you know. But still, so that those little percentages got got you milk, eggs, and butter in the fridge. Yep, yeah, yep, yep. It was the time, man. Like you said just now, the whole time it was the whole. Yeah. Yeah. No. The exactly. Times were different, man. It was a whole different thing, man. Just. Who is this cat? Who is this cat? Jeremy Storch. Uh, doesn't ring a bell right now. Um, uh, Jeremy Storch, oh. you're on at forty miles past Woodstock. That's the album RCA Victor, nineteen seventy one. I don't know, but I I bet you it has something to do with Mark. I'm gonna just tell you. Whoa! I'm gonna Stu Woods on bass, Phil Stu Woods? Woods, okay, Phil Leone on drums, Milt Hissler on flute, Harry Max on French horn, Dave Jimenez on guitar, Doug Rodriguez on guitar. Wow! Well, uh, I know Stu. You know, so, so how did you how did you know Stu was connected with Murata, I think. Yeah, and Moogie too, I believe. Yeah. Oh, oh Mo- yeah. Moogie, going back to Moogie again, dude. Yeah. So that yeah. might have been a Moogie session. It may have been, or it may have been. Yeah, I, yeah. I've been. I'm never yeah. gonna. If I ever find this album, dude, I'll mail it to you immediately. I don't know if you have a copy. I mean, I don't care. Forty miles past Woodstock. <clears throat> so no, I don't. Then Kevin Sarai. What is this? Okay, so. Uh, when I look into your eyes. Oh, that's uh, that's that jazz singer man who's really great. Cuando uh, oh. miro en tus ojos. The, the, this is credited to you on Bienvenido. 
Santana label CBS 1973. Oh, that was on Welcome. I guess that came out on Welcome. Yeah. Wow. That yeah. you wrote a tune. Did that was your tune? No. No, I didn't write anything on Carlos's stuff. No. No. Wow. That would have been nice, but no. Wow. Okay, so but, ultimately while you were out there Burlingame you mentioned to me off the air uh, meeting Betty Davis. Part of that album was recorded, I believe, in in the West on, in the Bay Area, and then part of it was recorded in New York. Maybe, uh, can you take us through your how you met Betty? Well, that would be this. This is all through Dougie now, Dougie Roush, because he was asked to be on the date. He he was the bass player. Him and Larry and Greg. I think Greg was the connect, the first connect to Betty, and then Dougie being tight with Greg, and Greg of course and with Larry. Larry was with Sly all the years. He's a bass player. You know, just that guy's a monster. Talk about monsters too, in a good way. <laughs> uh, oh, I'm sorry. I, I just I, I I'm sorry. I just got distracted there. Uh, uh, Larry Graham. Well, dude, Larry, man, Larry freaking yeah. drop. That was the freaking uh, Graham Central Station, man. Oh my God! <laughs> yeah, what baby. a band. Yeah, go ahead. Oh my God! Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So Dougie, being friends with Greg, of course, and Larry, uh, brought me in to do some guitar work, <clears throat> and they had Neil too, of course. Neil smoking. A uh, young man, just so talented. But uh, we did it at Wally Hyder, I believe. You absolutely did. Jules Broussard was on here. Victor Pantoa. We had, so, yeah. going, so you did it at, at Wally Hyder. Was yeah. it done? Were all the cats in the room at the same time? Yeah, the tracking. Yeah, definitely. Wow. wow. Yeah. Wow. The, whole, the, the whole rhythm section would do it all at the same time. And then Neil or I would do some guitar overdubs. So you, so I'm, I'm, I'm curious. I, just this is an important question because I, I, I fantasize about, and this is more in the jazz setting. I just, you know, <laughs> you drop an overhead mic, everybody gets in a circle, and you hit record and you go. Um, and that's more the jazz. And I, <laughs> I've interviewed a guy, Russ Gary, who did the, 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 the he was an engineer at Wally Hyder, and you know he'd do Cal Jader sessions. And everybody would be packed into that room. But did, for all your guitar work, for either Carlos or Betty, did you all did you ever hit live, or were they always overdubs? Uh, I think most of them were dubbing because they had to retract the stuff. Sure, but I may have done. I think Waves Within was with the band with everybody. Wow. Wow! Yeah, yeah. And so, so because I also I often think about the guitar uh, as a as a as a rhythm instrument. So, uh, but but the lead part of it you'd overdub. Yeah, yeah. A lot at that time that that was de rigueur. That's what most people did. I would think so. Yeah, most guitars because they would they would track the rhythm and then dub the the lead because they'd come up with different different messages and sentences in their solos and they might like one of the and and this is this is actually before digital really was happening i know but they had multi-tracking so you could have like 20 solos do it 20 times and 
whoever's running the board can just dip in and out of any of the tracks, keep little bits here and there, whatever, you know, and, and the listener would never know the difference. Yeah, so. Um, uh, pretty. Yeah, but, but yeah. the jazz stuff, like, like you said, Cal Jader and lots of jazz things, the engineers knew their studio so well, they could put a couple of Telefunkins way up high overhead, and the, the, those cats play with each other so much and are so sensitive to each other that you actually can capture it live. You're damn right. You know? Dude, you're 100 No, you didn't have to mic every part of the drum. The no. leak, leakage was actually completely acceptable. I, I, I mean, I, I, today the modern recording techniques just drive me nuts, but that's just a whole other ball of wax. You guys were just doing it raw. It came out sounding good, but raw. It's, it came out sounding real. It wasn't like you were in there perseverating for four months. You know, you'd have, you'd do it, you'd hit, you'd do a few couple solos, um, you know, and obviously most people say, you know, first, you know, first take is always the best, but you guys weren't sitting around, you know, you were just moving on to make new music, you know, and that was the beautiful thing because there was actually a record industry back then, you know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And today a guy can just do it in his bedroom, you know. Yeah, laptop, but you know you do it so. sixty nine times and you and you string all the soul out of it, dude. You know, um, exactly. <laughs> uh, so um, how did you connect with 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 Len Bone White? Okay, let's see. I had met Lenny, I think, through Dave Garibaldi. Wait, how did I, you meet Garibaldi? When I was living in San Francisco. Uh, Dougie took me to see them, and I instantly got tight with David. Wait, uh, you mean Tower of Power? Yeah, yeah, Tower. Damn. And, you know, I don't need to tell you if you've ever seen them live in the early days. Of course, you're you're not as old as No, me, I, I, I saw yeah. them recently. With, uh, they're still fucking great. Doc yeah, they're unreal. Yeah, I mean, rest in peace, Rocco. Did you, were you getting off on, I mean, I think their guitar player at that time might have been Bruce Conti, I think. Yeah, well, actually, I go so far back, it was Willie Fulton. Oh, dude, see, I, this, I, the first interview I did with Garibaldi, he told me about Willie Fulton. Unbelievable. Okay. Yeah, it was Willie and then Bruce. <laughs> and dig it, I got so tight with, with Dave that he'd take me to gigs, man, and I used to sit on the drum platform with him. Dude. During the show, um. just blowing my mind, learning and breathing and this new, these guys, it just hurt me so much. They were, I wanted to be with that band so bad. You would uh, never believe it. Wow. Oh my God. Wow, dude. So anyway, I think one gig they were playing at a club called, uh, that song Down at the Nightclub was written for. It was called The Orphanage, I think. What was it called? The Orphanage? The Orphanage. Yeah, The Orphanage. So, yeah, dig. Yeah. I, I think it was it. So... Lenny was at the gig and, and uh, comes backstage and Dave introduced him. How you doing, man? Yeah, 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 okay. Oh, you're from New York? Oh, yeah, I'm from New York, yeah. So when I went back, Lenny came to New York to start his record and Dougie was going to be on it. So automatically Dougie, my bro from before, you know, called me up and... Lenny said, "Sure, let's let's check it out." And we jammed. We did everything at Electric Lady. We practiced there. We recorded there. And uh, <clears throat> it, me and Dougie got we got two songs on Lenny's album. You know, Chicken Fried Steak and Away Go Troubles Down the Drain. And the name of that album was 
Venusian Summer. Venusian Summer, dude. Yeah. Wait, hold yeah. on. On Nemperor Records, I think that was... Yeah. Yeah, th- this is so classic. So, well, you actually... You have publishing for two of those tunes. Uh, that's that's still up in the air, and I just saw Lenny a couple of years ago here where I live at a community college doing a concert, and I didn't talk to him about it, but I, I'd rather keep that off the air. Uh, with absolutely, you. no, no, no problem. Yeah. But but you penned those tunes. You penned. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, got, got the credits. It's on there. My name and everything, and Dougie, which it happened to be a song that we had probably played. Oh, God, and wrote years before in a jam session out of my house in the basement of Long Island. And believe it or not, it, it stuck with us. And, and he loved it because it had a great feel. It was a funky sort of... And with Lenny's playing, it just opened oh, up. Oh, my, yeah, forget you know, about it. Just like, Jeez. Man, the guy, guy was... Fright- it was frightening to watch, to play him. Yeah, oh, you know, he... he, uh, he, he, he And he's such a selfless cat. People will say that They'll drive by his, his house in New Jersey. He'll be out in the front lawn raking leaves. Um, you know, it's like, <clears throat> I, but we're gonna we're gonna have to do set two. But I want to wrap up set one right now. Tell okay. me, I just need you to tell me about Dougie. Rock. You guys go back to high school together? No, no, we didn't go to school together. How did Dougie's you first from, meet him? I, I believe Dougie's from New Jersey. Uh, I met him in the village in those early days. Because he was uh Who was he playing with? Excuse me? Who was he playing with at that time? He was playing with... Uh, oh, God, I have such a funny name. He might have been with Wavy Gravy for a while. And Wait, no, Jay- hold on. Wavy, didn't, Wavy was doing poetry. He didn't, doing, he didn't have a band, I don't think. Was a, something, he, I remember something. They might have had a little music background stuff. But he was also with some other funny name band, Jake and something, Jake and the Bananas. Oh, yeah, or, J- the Jewels or something, maybe? I don't know. Not Jewels. He, he also was with Screaming Yellow Zonkers. Oh, my God. That was a serial actually made, uh, the title of a serial, <laughs> and they had to stop using that. Uh, oh, they had to stop using the name. All right, I'm, yeah, so, yeah, I, I, yeah, I think actually Kellogg's or Post or whatever got in touch with them, they got a cease and desist. So, so I just want to be clear, he was already on the scene when you were still just trucking in at 14 on the Long Island Railroad. He was start a part of it, but I never followed him around, but I saw him and I met him. Mm. He was, because he was unmistakable. He was like six foot two, Dougie, with a huge afro, and he wore felt Oh. He looked like Jimi Hendrix stuff used to wear. I freaking and, love this. And he's, he was just a nasty... He was playing electric, too, or upright? Yeah, Fender. Just uh, Fender. Electric oh Fender. God. But he's also a guitar player. And he kicks butt on it, too. Yeah. Dude. So, yeah. Oh, okay, so, no, so, then, so then you got... And then, so, all of a, yeah. then after I met Buzzy, Lenhart got invited through me, Klingman, because Buzzy had a drummer who had a loft way, way down on Greenwich Street, way downtown. And Moogie used to, they'd have jams there, and I was invited, and that's where I met Buzzy. And then all of a sudden, Dougie showed up. He was the bass player, because there was a lot of different bass players that would come sort of trying out to be with Buzzy's band. I don't even remember their names, but uh, Dougie stuck, and then that's that. This would be 66. 66. So incredible. 60 and I was, yeah. 
And I did not know his career went back that to that point. And then, so uh, you just talk a little bit about his legacy to modern music. I, I feel like well, he was loved by all the headiest cats, and everybody right. wanted a piece of him. And I believe he left us too soon. I'll tell you, I just thought of the name. It was Bunky and Jake. Bunky, Bunky. and Jake. I, I, can't, I mean, okay. it's, you know, go ahead. Anyway, Dougie, after, after we did the music album, that was the title of the album, Music, with me, John, Buzzy, and Dougie. Uh, it, maybe Dougie was into jazz. He never told me. And even when we jammed, he didn't really get outside. Sure. On that free thinking, you know, let it go stuff. But he could sure slap and do some finger and thumb techniques. Even with Buzzy, he was doing that early days. This is way before it became, you know, the fashion. Yeah, totally, yeah, he was way ahead of that. Yeah, D- Dougie's one of the, he's definitely he's one of the pioneers, if if not the pioneer. When did the what, the slapping thing what was it like mid to late seventies? Uh, when when did that really come? I mean, being a lead bass player, you could trace that back to Scotty LaFaro and. Monk, Monk Montgomery and people like that, but that that was a totally different style. The slapping yeah. thing, when was that? Like that was like late seventies, maybe first started getting really popular. I think it was uh, before that. Yeah, I think it's probably around the late late sixties, seventies started. Okay, so he was doing it mid six, like like sixty six. Yeah. Wow. Oh yeah, Dougie was doing that technique. Yeah. But yeah, wow. not it, yeah, yeah, yeah. But but then all of a sudden. After that record, then, see, I got into my motorcycle stuff, and then when I got back into the music scene with the voices, Dougie did a few gigs with us. Of course, he was in Africa on that gig. Right. Then he became, he was, he must have been wood woodshedding with uh, Coltrane and you name it, and because all of a sudden... He, he could just do anything and hear something and just play, and... and that's why Carlos ate him up, just grabbed him, snatched him up, you know. Oh, my. wait, hold on. You're talking about once you reconnected with him uh, after the biking, he had been... Right, it was the voices. That was the voices. Right, period. but he, at that point, he had begun shedding and he could really just... He could play in, out, all over the place. I would say around around that... African after the African after the two, after that he came yeah. back and then Carlos got hip to him and just said you're you're with me yeah that's it he saw yeah Carlos knew it you know I mean I'm sure he, unbelievable dude. You, you're coming with me son <laughs> when when how did you did you stay close through the years I I lose track of when he passed away and everything did you guys stay close uh, just on the phone once in a while yeah. and. Just the, the episode to doing the recording with Carlos and Betty Davidson and his living in the San Francisco area with him. Um, Doug, Doug, the funny thing is, I, Doug wasn't into drugs. Nothing. He didn't even smoke pot. He didn't even do that. And supposedly he died from an overdose of uh, age, you know? Well, how does that work? I mean, is that, that's, that, I, that's, I don't know. that doesn't smell right, man. I don't know right, what happened man. to the cat. <sighs> I don't know. So he got junked. I mean, listen, you know what? So many guys we talked about, uh, well, I mean, listen, I don't know. When did he d- pass away? 
I'm going to say 77. Or Holy 70. shit. Yeah, because you know what it was? <laughs> I mean, and I, I mean, I have all this stuff. I'll send you all these interviews with Shreve and stuff because, you know, they were all, whether, I mean, Coriel couldn't, he, he, he took Carlos and Michael to Shri Chimnoy's, uh, even though Coriel couldn't get sober. Um, those guys were seeing all their friends become roadkill. You know, all it takes is one OOD. It's, it's just, to me, like, a lot of those guys, um, well, they just, they were lucky to survive at that time. And it's just really, like, uh, yeah. uh, That's what I tell myself every week. Look, I saw Carlos, the first record, they were still messing around. The second record, he was into the McLaughlin thing, the Krishna. Yeah. Because I, I stayed at Carlos's house one day, one night. He drove me up back from the recording to stay up in a place up in Mount Tam. Mount sure. Mount Tamalpais, yeah. up in Mill Valley. Wow. Wow. And he gave me a little booklet of the religion he was into. His hair now was short. He was totally dedicated. He was eating cucumbers. I mean, the guy was 100%. And so straight, straight as narrow. I mean, eating really. cucumbers. <laughs> yeah, I know a lot of junkies that eat cucumbers. But no, I know that time period. The the, the white, the full white garb with McGlot. That's thank, when they were doing that. Thank app. You. Yeah. Love, thank devotion, you. surrender. Yeah. And it became, it became like, uh, too much. It's it's become like a friend, a friend who would not leave the party, who would not go away. <laughs> yes, it, and and it, it really did. It became overwhelming. And and and, and you know what? Buzzy Leonard had the same sort of qualities too. Once he quit smoking or something, you, you read stories about him. He couldn't even go near a room. He would ask everyone to stop. And yeah. Wait. So so you you. I'm I'm sorry. You you, you kind of. <laughs> you, I'm sorry, I jumped around. No, no. <laughs> what you're saying is that people get people sober up, but then it becomes they become too much or something like that. Yeah, there's a word for it. I can't think of it right. Overbearing. Now. <laughs> I don't. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, that's yeah. partially. Of yeah. course, yeah, that's exactly what I mean. Yeah. It's like enough already, you know. Right. No, it's it's too bad they're not aware of it. They're trying. Yeah, I think Stan Getz was like that when they first tried to get him into Alcoholics Anonymous. He would not stop talking. Like, he could not, they actually, he's the only guy they ever took, in Alcoholics Anonymous, the only guy they ever took to get a drink to get him to shut up. (laughs) (laughs) Dougie Rodriguez, man, we just cooked for 90 minutes, we'll we'll definitely do it again. Um, You made my fucking year, man. This, some of the stories you told, and you know, I realize you're not on, (laughs) I don't believe you're on social media or anything like that, you don't have internet, but. A lot of these. Not, sto- as, not at that name, no. Not on that name. And I was wondering today if you wanted to do this with FaceTime. I'm, I have that capability if you want next time. Yeah, no, I mean, actually, I mean, I know you're just getting hip to my show, but, you know, essentially it's uh, the voice came first. So it's, you know, to me, like, when I get out to your neck of the woods, we'll definitely catch a hang in person, do a video interview. But, oh. um, you know, all I'm going to say is, man, uh, you know, I'm connected to all these guys on social media, new media, uh, and they're, they always read my posts. So the stories you told about Dougie, Garibaldi, Murata, this is going to be, people are going to be cracking up. You bring a lot of smiles to people's faces, man. I, you know, I think here's the bottom line as a journalist, if you have good content, I'm a rogue journalist. So if you have good content, 
You can drive consciousness on these platforms. They get a bad rap because most people just receive information and they drown. But if you can produce content, you can connect people. And just the idea of John Siamos, who I have not, the only two cats who have ever talked about him are you and Murata. That story about Murata is going to be, people are going to be belly laughing when they hear this stuff, dude. Yeah, I got more stories. I could tell you plenty of stories about John, who used to tell me stories about Peter, which I'd have to have your approval first before you would want this to no, no, I know. I, I, we have. To, I want to yeah. go deep. I want to do a deep dive into Spider and Mandrel, and then we'll yeah. do some. Uh, we'll do some Frampton stuff. But, dude, man, bless you, brother. And I'll and set, do me a favor. Email me as soon as possible a really good yeah. photo. If you can, you do that. Can you email me a photo of you? Uh, okay. From back, maybe many, you. And, but I'll try. I'll dig one up. We'll yeah, dig out. dig up one from back in the day with you know, and and then uh, I'll get this up on my podcast. I'll send you a link to it later. But man. You brought you brought in the new year with style, bro. Well, thanks, Jake. And if you could remember one thing, write this down. If you get Murata on the horn soon, yeah. Manhattan Dirt Riders, dude. I'm now hey, that Dougie, Dougie said to ask you about the Manhattan Dirt Riders. Who was in that band? Spinoza, Murata. It's not a band. It was it was uh, the motorcycle bunch. Spinoza and Ricky, and he might have had a couple. Dude, others, you, and They were all oh my god session players. Dude, honestly, dude, I, yeah. you've opened up a Pandora's box here, dude. This is <laughs> un freaking real, dude. Okay, all right, all right, man. Much love, dude. Oh, uh, thanks, Jim. Have a great day. You, Stay safe. You too, man. Be cool. Bye bye. Bye-bye.